It's hard to beat the Gettys. <laughs> I love that song so much. Uh, friends, it's so good to be back here with you all, uh, worshiping here at Harvest. Um, I was looking uh, the past few weeks or so, Ken and I were talking about uh, ways that we could maybe uh, find an excuse for me to come back and visit with you all, and just so happened that he got sick with COVID, and so it worked out pretty well, at least for me. I, I feel bad for you both, uh, you and Kathy, but um, I'm excited to be back here with you all. It was just the perfect excuse to finally be able to come back and worship with you all. Um, two months ago, I actually had the joy of taking a doctoral class with uh, one of my favorite preachers uh, named Rick Phillips. He's a PCA pastor down in, I believe, Greenville, South Carolina, teaches at Greenville Seminary and also at Westminster. Uh, wonderful, just uh, man of God, trained by uh, James Montgomery Boyce years ago and used to work with him and Phil Riken back in the day. Anyways, uh, wonderful class with him, to say the least. And it was all about revelation. Uh, the entire class was about apocalyptic literature and how do you preach it, right? And so I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to actually do that this Sunday and actually open up the Bible to Revelation and preach on what is honestly one of my favorite books in the entire scripture. And so this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, where we're about to see apocalyptic literature right before us. Now, of course, as we approach this genre, it can be admittedly very confusing for us. I mean, who hasn't been confused by Revelation as you've read through it? I know I certainly have over the years, but even as a kid, uh, even at the age of seven, no joke, I actually first read through Revelation cover to cover. It was actually the first book of the Bible I read through all the way, and I was just fascinated by it. All of the vivid language and talk about dragons and the king who is reigning and all of this majestic imagery— But in the midst of all of this, I realized, even as a kid, but especially all the more now, that in the midst of all of its mystery, the actual message of Revelation is quite simple. And it's this, that our majestic king will indeed triumph. Just as we were just singing about, he will indeed triumph. And in fact, he already is, of course, ruling and reigning over us, as we've also sung about. And so this message of God's triumph is always timely. Not just in times of peace, but especially, as Lynn was just praying, in times of distress. Times in which our culture is facing, even right here, where we are uncertain about the future and how things will go in favor or not so favorably toward the church, even here in America. And so this message of God's triumph, then again, is timely. It's timely in seasons of feast or fallow, in seasons of sowing seed or uh, gathering the grain, rather, in seasons of striving or seasons of blessing. And so I'd like to turn our attention specifically to Revelation chapter 4, as we see here this message of divine grace over us. Now, as we approach this text, I think it's important to first paint the picture of Revelation, because again, it is indeed a bit confusing at first. And so as a brief word of introduction regarding the book of Revelation, The book itself stands as the grand culmination of all of the prophetic witness to God's grandeur and majesty in his dealings with his covenant people, with people like you and me. See, it's characterized by literary form, by figurative language, and a lot of it, and apocalyptic visions that showcase both God's just judgment against sin, but also his sheer mercy toward his own people who are bought by the blood of Jesus. And so as we read Revelation, we ourselves are vividly, figuratively speaking, transported back to that same island of 
the inhabited island of Patmos, in which John himself saw this vision of the Lord Jesus come to him once again. We are made to see this vision of Christ, though, as John was enraptured by the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day in the midst of holy worship. Not unlike a day like this own Lord's day that we are now in. Revelation, though, also serves us then, as it did the early church, it serves us as fellow servants to whom Jesus wrote as a word of blessing in the midst of strife. And Revelation 1, right from the outset in verse 3, makes it very clear to us that this is a word of blessing in the midst of the struggles. And so John, the servant of Jesus, received this authoritative instruction from the beginning of Revelation from Christ's own words to write everything that he saw and then also send out that same message of the prophetic word of King Jesus' reign in order to comfort his people who are in distress. And so this passage continues to this day. It's not just those in Asia Minor, but even here, us gathered here this morning, as a word of blessing, a word of blessing from the heart of our living Savior to our own listening ears. So without further ado, I'd love to, with this introduction out of the way, now lead us to this reading of God's word from Revelation 4, and we'll read from verses 1 through 11, the whole of this passage here. This is the inspired and holy word of God. Revelation 4 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, meaning Jesus' voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders." clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, this is the reading of God's word. Again, God's word is forever faithful and true and given to us in love. And with this fresh in our minds, let's come before the throne of grace and prayer. 
King Jesus, we ask that as we have opened your word, you would illuminate by your Holy Spirit this unchanging truth to us. Though it is unchanging, we ask that you would speak to our hearts through this message of divine grace, words of life that would be applicable to our lives currently in the here and the now. We ask, O oh God, that as your word is opened, that it would be uh, um, like a sword that rightly divides um, between spirit and flesh and, and divides between the things even in our lives that would uh, refrain us from giving you proper worship. Prick our hearts, O oh God, in this time to worship you in spirit and in truth, in love and in compassion toward your word and your people. We pray all this in Christ's holy name, amen. Well, churches, those who are loved by Jesus, I believe that Revelation 4 in particular explains to us how we are to worship God. Not just the why, not even what, you know, how to do it on a Sunday morning, so to speak, but how from our very hearts to King Jesus. First, the passage really tells us two things, but first it tells us that we are to worship him with awe. And we see that especially in the first six verses. But second, the passage tells us that we are to worship him and truly invited to worship him with thank-filled honor. And so those will be our two points this morning, that we are invited to worship our king with awe and with honor. Now, as a word of introduction in regard to the, the theology, the backdrop of Revelation, uh, I love the book uh, by the th Anglican theologian Richard Bauckham called The Theology of Revelation. Very uh, basic title for a book on the theology of Revelation, but it's a very wonderful book. And Richard Bauckham explains that this inspired apocalypsis before us is thoroughly, from beginning to end, Trinitarian. We see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from beginning to end. And for those who would ever say that the Bible does not teach the Trinity, all we have to do is take them to Revelation, and you see it on almost every single page. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of his power and glory. In fact, for instance, even in the first two verses, we saw this already before us. In verse 1, we see Jesus speaking from his own lips to our listening ears. In verse 2, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of verse 2, we see God the Father, the one who is seated on the throne in particular in this scene of worship. And so this passage serves to paint the picture of both the unity, but also the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. In the words of our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, uh, the members of the Trinity are one in substance and power and eternity. The Father is, of course, of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, not made, but begotten. And yet the Spirit is eternally proceeding from both the Father and the Son. And furthermore, the confession goes on to state this, and I think it's important for us to hear and to, to meditate on before we dive into this more properly, that the triune God has all life and, quote, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them. And that is key for our passage, or from them rather, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. 
This church is the backdrop of what we have beheld already in Revelation chapter 4. And the glory of God is expressly put forth before us through Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. God whom we see even now only by faith, but who has taken on mortal flesh and has been raised from the dead. See, the Son of God, of course, is the Revelator, capital R, Revelator of God himself. According to John 14, verse 9 in the Gospels, to see Jesus is to see the Father. And as Hebrews 1 tells us, that the Lord has been pleased to speak to us through not mere words of fallen men, not through the mouths of earthly kings or rulers, and definitely not by politicians, this election cycle. (laughs) Rather, he has chosen to speak to us through his beloved Son, the Word of God himself whom, as scripture says, he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. As Revelation 1 verse 5 tells us, this Jesus is indeed the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of all those kings on the earth. And so through the infallible Holy Spirit-inspired authoritative word of God, the Bible, we hear the voice of our God here through the lips of Jesus even, in these verses here, in chapter 3, leading into chapter 4. And these words call us to pay careful attention to what is about to be said, the scene that is painted before our eyes. And so from the start of Revelation 1 all the way to our own passage, we are made to behold the glory and the power of the triune God expressed to each one of us who have ears to hear. See, amidst all the figurative language of Revelation, amidst all the confusing language, admittedly so, and the repetition of numbers and themes and motifs, we see yet one king who is seated confidently on the throne. And he himself is encircled by the whole host of heaven and the sum of all created beings and earth's representatives, as we see here before us. Church, is this is the king of heaven whom we worship even this morning. Do you believe that? But if we're honest with ourselves, our senses toward the things of God often become so dulled, don't they? See, our spiritual taste buds become accustomed to the things of this earth. In our day-to-day living, our worship becomes divided and disjointed and even diluted. I don't doubt that each one of us here, gathered here at Harvest, long to be faith-filled worshipers of our triune God, who is indeed majestic, but so often the focus of our minds and the always changing emotions of our hearts become so riddled with fears and concerns. And, and good things at that, of course. To be transparent, even this past week, in thinking of my own life, my attention has been so divided amongst Uh, committee meetings and looking at pursuing ordination in the ARP and writing my first book right now on church history and the possibility of moving and matters of uh, deep friendships and relationships and planning literally five trips over the next three weeks and the like. Life is busy. I know we're all busy. But in the midst of our work, in the midst of our busyness even, where do we direct our greater act of service i.e. worship. See, in the midst of our planning for the things of the future, are our hearts directed moment by moment moment, continually 
toward the glorious future that awaits us as believers in Christ. See, as we appropriate our love toward our friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors alike, are we casting our truest and most pure affections upon our living Savior? To answer these things, you and I need a transformed reorientation of our hearts on a day-by-day basis. We need, to use the language of Revelation, the lampstands of our own hearts to be set aflame by the Holy Spirit of God and nothing apart from awe-filled worship will accomplish this for us. We can't muster this up in our own selves. It has to be God's grace given to us. And as such, through his word, I am convinced that this scene in Revelation 4 is purposed to then break through the struggles, the strivings, and the sufferings of our own lives as Christians. It is a scene of unbridled, unmatched, uninhibited, uncontainable worship unto the King of all kings. It interrupts us, each one of us, in the midst of our labors and our busyness with the life-giving message of God's holy salvation from on high. See, just as the young man Elihu, as Heidi and James and I were talking about last night, Elihu in the book of Job ushered Job's mind away from his present-day sufferings to the magnificent grandeur of God overall. So John the Apostle, by the inspired word of God, the word of Christ, ushers our own mind's eye through this text to a timeless, heavenly scene of the Holy One whom we serve, encompassed all around by pure worship. So again, Revelation 4 verse 1 says this, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. Now, throughout the scriptures, the images of doors, so to speak, as it says here, are used in a variety of ways. They can be used as doors of opportunity, so to speak, or doors for the gospel to advance. We think in those terms even here as a church plant, I'm sure. We, we pray for God to open doors for conversations as we prayed earlier, even this morning. But here, the door that is used between the words of Jesus at the very tail end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 are centered around one key idea. The idea of invitation. A portal, a, a transport, if you were, if you will, uh, from Jesus' words to the churches there in that day to now a heavenly, timeless scene, a vision, really. And so this door is provided by Jesus himself. It is a door for gospel nourishment opened by the capital D door of the sheepfold himself in accordance with John 10, verse 7. And so you and I as readers and hearers of the same word are invited and even welcomed into this most heavenly scene out of our strivings and into this holy place of worship. But it's important here to note that as we seek to understand this, we must understand the theology of what's going on. Uh, The theologian G.K. Beale, wonderful man of God, in his masterful commentary on Revelation, insists that this specific vision that it really extends from Revelation 4 all the way to chapter 5, is truly one scene of worship. And it's meant to be taken not chronologically in succession, but consecutively, if you will. 
See, Revelation is filled with many various visions. And if we were to understand each vision as happening you know, from past to future, we would begin to misunderstand the actual meaning of the text. We also would end up with some screwy end-time theology, to say the least. <laughs> so each vision doesn't take us simply from past to future. Rather, these visions here, this heavenly scene, takes us, I believe, to a, again, timeless scene of worship, a scene that transcends all space and time, a scene that, to my own understanding, is purposed to summon us into beholding what is truly timeless and unmeasurable, the worship of God, everlasting. And so it is an everlasting echo of the stories of both creation in chapter 4 and redemption in chapter 5 in particular. Far more important, though, than a mere calendar date, we see the single most grand, continuous worship service here in chapters 4 and 5, in which the sovereignty and holiness of God are on full display. We see, in essence, a call to Jesus himself in verse 1 of chapter 4. We see the gathering of God's creation in verses 4 through 8. And we see a movement through the traditional biblical liturgy, complete with a retelling of, again, the stories of creation and redemption, met with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all echoing forth God's faithful promises from the old covenant to the new. And there ends up being, at the very end of this entire passage, a doxology of chapter 5, verse 13, followed by a final amen, a loud shout of thanksgiving in verse 14. See, when we understand the whole of Revelation 4 through 5 as being genuinely a worship service unto the triune God, all of the colorful brilliancy that we've seen here in our passage, all of the symmetry amongst the worshipers, the images of the calmed crystal sea and the spirits and the thrones and the crowns and all the like, they begin to find their greater end. Through the vehicle of apocalyptic literature, figurative language, if you will, this vision begins to convey to us actual, specific truths about our God that transcend our ability to rationalize the same. See, he alone has authority over all lesser thrones. In his presence, all must bow in humble adoration. Nothing unclean and impure can come approach him the holiest of holies, and no one else can claim dominion and honor but our God. These truths and so many more begin to rush through this passage to us like a mighty river all to our attention here in verses 2 through following. See, the one who is seated on the throne had the appearance, as it says, of jasper and carnelian. All around the throne was a rainbow that had uh, this, this glistening glow to it. And here we see the full spectrum of light bursting forth from the throne and encircling all of the heavenly host. All emanating, if you will, from God himself. And beyond the brilliancy of refracted light upon the pristine crystal sea, the appearance of the exalted one is described for us here through colors as well of precious earthy stones and gems. Images of heaven and earth here are met. Images of strength and beauty, of royalty and purity are all right here before our eyes. And so this king who is seated on the throne rules over them all, everything in heaven and on earth. And it's here in verse 4 that we begin to see the exercise 
of his absolute sovereignty takes shape. It says this in verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now scholars have long debated over whom exactly these elders were, right? It's a bit confusing for us. Who are these 24 figures here? Many have indicated that they are likely representative of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, you know, and maybe they are the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Others believe that they are angelic beings or maybe even indicative of starry hosts, you know, heavenly beings, so to speak. Some believe that they uh, represent the 24 books of the Hebrew scriptures known as the Tanakh. Personally, I'm inclined to believe that they are indeed angelic beings of a kind, but they serve here as representatives of the whole number of the Old and New Testament saints. They indicate something so much greater than just angels, in other words. But regardless of how we interpret this picture, what is most clearly presented to us is the significance of the scene. See, what we are made to behold here is, in effect, an encirclement around the throne of grace, complete with an array of lesser thrones and signs of purity designated by white garments and golden crowns placed upon these members' heads. And in the center, the magnitude of flashing lightning, the loud rumblings, the cracks of thunder, complete with the Holy Spirit's presence, represented by the seven burning torches of fire, all draw us not to the ring of hosts itself, but rather the one who is seated in the midst of all of it. Here sits our God with absolute dominion and control. But notice this, in the midst of this most holy, all-consuming fire, our God, who dwells in unapproachable light, makes his reign known to us as not a reign of terror, but a reign of peace. See, that sea that is before him is made as fine glass. And that is so important for us to catch. See, this sea does not dare move an inch. The sea that is throughout scripture indicative of chaos and death and destruction, even judgment against God's enemies when you think of the Israelites crossing over through the sea, here, that sea is made as smooth as glass, perfectly still before him. And see, just as Jesus stepped out upon the Sea of Galilee and calmed it with a word from his own voice in the gospel accounts, the sea cannot rage in the slightest against our God. Our Lord, the King Eternal, has the power then to utterly quell every degree of rebellion against him. And this is the message that he's sending to us even here. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? In your own day-to-day -day lives, when you are faced with antagonism or opposition, especially on account of being a believer in Christ, when you feel the weight of your own sin crushing or debilitating you, do you yet hear the louder voice of Jesus upon the seas in your own life? It is I, do not be afraid. Accordingly so then, you and I must worship this king with awestruck wonder, especially if we are to orient our whole lives toward God and lead others by example in worshiping him. But we are also invited to worship him with again that thank-filled honor that I talked about earlier in response to his personal kindness 
these emblems of the gospel even here signified as they lead into chapter 5. So beginning halfway through verse 6 in chapter 4, we see again a repetition going on of sorts. The phrase around the throne is used again and again and again. And I'm convinced that this is not arbitrary. It's not accidental. Rather, in the Greek, this word kuklo, which we get the word cycle from, indicates for us a ring in effect of worshipers and items of worship for our own imaginations to conjure up and to entertain. On each side of the throne, from the front to the back, from side to side, each place is met with a cherubim or a seraphim-like creature. And so John describes these as appearing like a lion, like an ox, like a man, and like an eagle in flight. And this intentional reference to the cherubim, I believe here, uh, conjures our mind's eye back to images from the Old Covenant, images of the Ark of the Covenant, for instance, and pictures from Isaiah 6, when Isaiah was there before the throne in that parallel passage. According to Revelation 4, verse 8, these living beings, though, are, it says as well here, full of eyes all around and within. Definitely a strange image, to say the least. (laughs) I'd be a little freaked out myself if I were to see this, as I'm sure John was. But in spite of this, the holy magnitude of God before them never ceases to capture their attention. And I believe that is what it is saying. that They cannot stop looking at God's glory. They have eyes all around to see it. And so as regards their creaturely elements then, concerning the lion, the ox, the man, and even the man-like imagery, scholars, of course, are just like the rest of Revelation, not in perfect alignment over what these might represent. Uh, Some have suggested that these signify the whole of God's created order of beings. Maybe those who are untamed creatures, those that are tamed creatures, mankind as well, and even birds in flight. Others believe that the fourfold nature of these winged beings refer to the four cardinal directions or maybe the four winds or the geographic corners, so to speak, of the earth. Whatever the case, though, I believe that we do well to understand them as being, first and foremost, angelic beings in tandem with the other parallel passages in Ezekiel 1, verses 5 through 21, and again, Isaiah 6, verse 1 and following, which I will not read here, but I would encourage you to read later. And second, I believe that their purpose before the throne of God is to serve, even in communicating to us, as a declaration of that praise that which, again, encircles God day and night, never ceases. After all, their presence around kuklo, cyclical, so to speak, around the throne, serves to show us now for even a third and a fourth time in verses 6 and 8, respectively, that their existence entirely is to direct the worship of the surrounding creature all to the one king on the throne. As such, then, we see their circular, continuous song heard resounding in the Trishagion of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Here, purity, power, and eternality are ascribed to our God by these living beings in repetition of three threefold statements. Holy, 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 an attribution unto God's complete transcendence, otherness, and purity. Lord God Almighty, 
a threefold statement often used of lesser god kings in that ancient culture, but only properly, of course, attributed to God himself. And finally, the third statement, who was and is and is to come, as a proclamation of his eternal kingly reign, a reign that far supersedes any temporal reign of any earthly king or ruler. And so echoing this response, the 24 elders that we see in verses 9 through 11 here bow down to the king who lives forever and ever as they cast their crowns before the throne, declaring in tandem creation's anthem, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The repetition of kingly motifs then, of crowns, of thrones, of precious gemstones, of absolute God-king status, that again is all being communicated to us through this text, is here now on full display before us. But as we begin to zoom out and take a moment to reflect upon what is going on in this scene, I believe it's no accident that we begin to see a somewhat curious image before us. See, as we read Revelation, it's so easy for us to become enthralled by these individual images and begin to lose sight of the actual bigger picture that God is painting for us and communicating to us. We can spend countless hours poring over what exactly these figures, the numbers, the elders, the creatures, all of these things mean and lose sight of the underlying message that God would have for us. As such, I'm convinced that Revelation 4 and its message is actually quite simple. It is this, again, that God is sovereign over all and that even in a scandalous way, so to speak, he has chosen in his good pleasure to make his creation out to be, in effect, a crown of joy for him. Thinking back to the creation account, amidst all of the praise literally encircling the throne here, amidst all of the pictures of jewels and rainbows and the multitude of crowns and thrones, there is, in effect, a crown here that encircles the king of all kings, a crown that he has made for himself, a crown that, as he says in Genesis 1, is very good in effect. And as Revelation 4, verse 11 says, by his will, all things existed and were created. And so this crown is good and beautiful, at least it ought to have been. But we all know the story. <laughs> we all know that sin has had its way in our own lives. We're aware of its effects upon not only our own selves, but even all of creation around us. We know that God designed to be very good, and yet we also wonder, in spite of our sin, who are we then to serve as those who bring honor and praise to this holy God? Certainly not us. We are so unworthy. Yes, we are image bearers of the king, but we also know firsthand the disjointedness and the brokenness, the botched of fellowship that we have made with our king who lives forever. We were made from the dust after all and to the dust we shall return. And so this posture of humility is proper before the Lord for us to have. But humility is indeed a proper recognition for who we are before God both as mere men and women, yes, but also in light of the gospel message of grace through Christ, that which makes us uh, candidates, so to speak, those for whom he died willingly and lovingly. 
Candace to receive his divine grace in love. And he has secured it, of course, through his own death. It is important then that we hold this posture of humility, both our own created order that God has gifted us with, but also the humility that we recognize before him in light of our sin and the travesty that it brings, but also redemption in Christ. It is important that we see these things and hold that tension in a healthy balance. Yesterday, I was talking, for instance, at great length with a dear friend of mine who is training right now for the pastoral ministry. Uh, He and I both share this tendency that we have in our own hearts to become our own worst critics. Oftentimes, in our own service to other people around us, in our inner thoughts, so to speak, we often wish that we could do more than what we could reasonably do in our own worship toward God or in our own service to other people. Oftentimes, the enemy has his way in people who have tender consciences like us, and I'm sure like many of us here as well. The enemy loves to ravage and tear at us. And so these thoughts, though, thankfully, by God's grace, reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite pastors, Robert, John, or Robert Murray McShane, rather, uh, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, wonderful, wonderful young man, who delivered to his congregation words of encouragement in light of who they were in Christ as they were wrestling with their own faith as well. And so he said these words to them, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much, he says, in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Cry after divine knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding. Seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, according to the word in Proverbs 2, verse 4. Murray uh, McShane goes on to say this. See that Proverbs 2.10 be fulfilled in you. Let wisdom then enter your hearts and knowledge be pleasant to your soul. So, meaning in this way, you will be delivered from the snares mentioned in the following verses. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly anymore, or the world, or for Satan, or even the flesh. Friends, what a day it will be when we live fully in light of the smiles of God over us, in light of what Christ has done for us. Here at Harvest, in the meantime, though, you and I have this unique work of church planting. See, each one of us has been called to be a part of advancing the gospel message here in the greater Williamsburg area. But we will only be able to bring honor to God in the midst of our church planting if we, as we live our lives, seek to be those who build every aspect of our lives as individuals, family members, friends even, upon the rock, which is Christ. I'm sure you already know that church planting is hard work. Many of you have been in this for at least three years, others for a long before even. After all, church planting itself is kingdom work. And as citizens of that uh, heavenly kingdom here in this life, as it breaks through, we must remain fully aware that our work then is not for our own selves or our own glory, but rather 
we must operate out of a firm faith in our identity in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. But lest we tremble at the magnitude of the work ahead in terms of church planting and even reaching this area with the gospel of Christ, let us rest in full assurance that the smile of God our Father rests upon us all the while as those who are in the Son. And at the last, we will know just how much he treasures us as he does his own beloved Son. I love the passage of Isaiah 28. And in verse five, it tells us this, that in that day, the Lord of God, that final day when he returns, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Friends, as those who are gathered here at harvest, doing the hard work of church planting, which I know you are, I want to encourage you to recognize the fact that you are those who are doing battle at the gate. Hard times are ahead, yes, but also seasons of plenty and blessing as well as we faithfully abide in Christ. And so this work of church planting must be recognized for what it is. It is spiritual. It even includes spiritual warfare, but it requires the whole of who we are. And in the same way, our worship, biblically speaking, is spiritual in nature and will require the whole of who we are in every aspect of our lives. And so rest assured that as you continue on and fight this good fight of faith here in Williamsburg and beyond, even now you serve the people around you as children of the King, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you are, again, even though we're undeserving of it, considered to be his joy, his crown, and his delight. So you serve the lamb who is worthy of all praise, who was slain and who is now alive forevermore. And so let this message of divine grace wash over you and warm your hearts and spur you on in your own respective callings within God's kingdom of grace. As the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, our citizenship is indeed in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, Paul goes on, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, Paul says something similar to the people of God. What is our hope or joy of crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our joy and crown. So church, know that the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of his own sheep, sees you as his joy and his crown. The prize for which he ran that race with endurance, as Hebrews tells us. And so the glory in all of this, the glory especially of his redeeming work accomplished for you and his glory and applied to you by his spirit is that you and I are now made only by his work to be fit for a king. We are, as the late Presbyterian pastor Francis Schaeffer Schaeffer once put it, glorious ruins. (laughs) And so hold that tension before you even as you do the work of church planting. 
As a final point of application and in closing here, how then, of course, should we live? See, if we are those who are purchased by Christ, if we are drawn to worship him in spirit and in truth, we are, in effect, now more precious than the glimmering jewels and the earthy stones that we've read about. And as such, we must learn to live accordingly in God's sight. We are those who are invited and indeed must stand in awe of worship, of worshiping him. We are also those who have been invited to bring honor and praise that is due his name and not shrink back from serving him in the midst of adversity, in the midst of temptations, but rather to daily look heavenward where Christ is seated. We must be enraptured by the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, always in view of his sovereign mercy poured out over us. And so with this in mind, let us lift our own eyes to heaven, even as we pray now and close up. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that this message of divine grace has been given to us. We thank you, Lord, that your word is forever faithful and true, and it continues to spur us on to recognize that you are the one who is enthroned on high. We ask, O oh God, that as we uh, go about our week ahead of us, we would not feel uh, cast down in the midst of burdens that we face, but rather that we would live in light of the smiles of you, our Heavenly Father, over us. That we would be cognizant of your love poured out and that we would walk as children of the light, not bowing down to the deeds of darkness, the sin around us, not giving sway to cultural persuasions, things around us that seek to captivate our attention and even draw us into anything uh, that is unholy or profane before you. But we ask, O oh God, that as we go about this life, we would be those who walk in step with your Holy Spirit. We will be those who keep one eye, lifted eye toward you and thrown on high as we continue to move forward and fight this good fight before us. So we ask that you would teach us to do that, that we would see you, the King of heaven, and that we would be captivated by your beauty above all else. So we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.